And people believed that like there were certain like fields and roads and that's where the clan would go and they would do their things and they would murder people. And then there were other fields and roads and that's where the devil worshippers would go and they would murder people. Not the same roads. Not the same roads. Exactly. There were different people, the different people, different roads, but like three roads diverge in the yellow. Exactly. Exactly. And if you, as long as you pick the right path, you're fine. If you went the wrong way, you were either going to run into the clan or the, the devil worshippers. One of the two. Well, I found out that one of the two isn't real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think by the time I was growing up, I don't actually know if, if there were that many, you know, clansmen running around Probably North not. Alabama. Maybe there were, but <laughs> that was sort of, you know, amongst like the young, the kids and stuff. That's what we would, that's what we were afraid of, right? This is Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. That's Brett Talley, an author of several best-selling novels and anthologies, including He Who Walks in the Shadows, That Which Should Not Be, and The Fiddle is the Devil's Instrument. He has been twice nominated for the Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement, the top award for horror writing presented annually by the Horror Writers Association. The works of writers that are nominated for the Bram Stoker Award, which is named after the Irish Victorian era Gothic fiction writer who is the author of Dracula, are nominated by juries and members of the Horror Writers Association. That Which Should Not Be was Brett's first novel, and it was published in 2011. In addition to being nominated for the Bram Stoker Award for first novel, it was a semifinalist for the Goodreads Choice Awards and the winner of the Journal Stone Horror Writing Contest. That Which Should Not Be takes readers on a journey to Missatonic University, a fictional school with a whispered reputation for being connected to the occult and the supernatural, where a professor and a student search a nearby village for a book that's believed to control all non-human forces that rule the earth. The pair bring the book back to Missatonic, opening up a gate to the netherworld. Brett was also nominated for a 2014 anthology, Limbus Inc., Book Two. He edited that book, where five masters of horror, fantasy, and science fiction writing take readers on a world of time travel, human sacrifice, intergalactic beings, and more. Brett is also the author of several true ghost stories and a nonfiction book called Haunted Tuscaloosa, which explores the paranormal in the Alabama town from the now shuttered local insane asylum and antebellum mansions said to be haunted by ghosts to cemeteries where Confederate soldiers are still said to march and ghost stories from the University of Alabama grounds. Brett is an attorney and his interests include horror, science fiction, the Paranormal, and other whodunit and whatdunit mysteries. He's the host of the Prosecutor's Podcast, where he and his co-host, Alice LaCour, tackle well-known and less-known true crime cases. But they also tackle some mysteries, some flat-out, hard-to-explain events. Over the years, they've had episodes about the Dyatlov Pass incident, where nine Soviet hikers died under mysterious circumstances in the Ural Mountains, 
1993 Kaimar Dabane incident, where six hikers disappeared in the mountains near the enormous Lake Bacal in southern Siberia. They have covered whether the moon is hollow, the Salem witch trials, the mystery of whether the Soviets lost cosmonauts in space, and the story of Aldolfo Concentrinzo, who surely believed he could use human sacrifice and magic to move cocaine into the United States from Mexico. Brett's co-host, Alice, calls him a true Renaissance man, and I have to agree. The Prosecutor's Podcast was the 2023 winner of the People's Choice Creator of the Year Award at CrimeCon. This October, Brett and Alice have told weeks of real-life horror stories from the 1987 story of Ruthie Mae McCoy, the chilling story of a murder of a woman that happened because people broke through her medicine cabinet and that led to the movie Candyman, and what Brett and Alice called the man who killed Halloween, the 1974 case of Ryan Clark O'Brien, who killed his eight-year-old son, Timothy, by lacing pixie sticks with potassium cyanide. Today, we're going to discuss the paranormal, horror, science fiction, and all that's mysterious and spooky, both about fiction and in reality. It's October 30th, and this is the first of two episodes with Brett. The next episode will drop tomorrow morning on Halloween. Brett, just wanted to thank you for joining me again um, and just flag for everybody those two great episodes we did with Alice um, a couple months ago where you guys had a chance to talk about sort of your role as prosecutors and podcasters. And, you know, one of the coolest things about that conversation for even people who are not interested in true crime or, you know, prosecutors of the law so much of that conversation was really about community. And I thought that message about community was so important. The point that you made about how um, we don't have a lot of that anymore. So many of those communities have broken down. So I just wanted to appreciate or share that appreciation with you and let you know that we got a lot of really positive feedback about that idea of community. Well, I'm so glad to be back on the show. You know how much I appreciate you and and that those two episodes. You know, it's funny you go into things like this. You never really know how they're going to go. You just kind of have these these free form discussions, and I think that's one of the thing I really enjoyed about it is it was just a discussion. It wasn't super structured or anything. Right. And it's funny the the things that will will come out when you don't have that kind of structure. And, and that wasn't <laughs> a point I think we meant to make, but it just as we were talking, it became sort of obvious to both of us. Yeah, how important that was. And it's something that I've mentioned in, in subsequent discussions with people because I think it was it was sort of eye-opening to talk it through and yeah. and really things that I sort of knew intuitively to bring them sort of to, to my own consciousness. Because yeah, I think I love I love community, the community that we built so much. And you know, we're gonna be talking about horror today, and there's a horror community. And that was one of the things I always loved about horror is that it's the same, it's the same kind of thing, bringing people together from just completely divergent backgrounds might have nothing else in common, but they have in common this one thing, this love of, in the, in the case of horror, the, the macabre. 
Right, right, right. I was just gonna, yeah, I, I, I was just thinking about the idea of like, there's so many things I hate about social media, so many things I hate about like, um, you know, yeah, let's just say social media, but the ability of it to bring together communities of people with similar interests. Oh, I know where this came from. I was talking to somebody about true crime and I was like, you realize we're all weirdos in our own neighborhoods. But like together, you know, as a collective community of people who have a similar similar interest, we're able to bond over so much more and share, I guess, have such rewarding experiences with uh, with each other. And that's one of the powerful things about that, if that makes sense. No, I think it makes total sense. And I think social media is the ultimate double-edged sword, and there's so much bad about it. And we focus on the bad a lot. I mean, we focus on how it divides people. How it allows people to be bullies and stalkers and do and do and say horrible things to people they've never met, things they would never say in person. Right. You know, people. I remember we were getting ready for CrimeCon and people were like, "Are you are you worried about CrimeCon? You know, are you worried that people are going to come yell at you and stuff?" And and I really wasn't because I knew the people, <laughs> the same people who who do that kind of stuff on social media in person don't tend to do it. And sure enough, like CrimeCon was a love fest, even though I'm sure there were many people there who. <laughs> who disagreed with us on all sorts of things. And you see that in social media, but you're hundred percent right. It also is, we're all weird. Every single one of us, Yep. you know, every, I don't care how normal you think you are. There is something about you that, that other people would think are weird. <laughs> and, right. and frankly, I think that's what makes people interesting. I think if there was nothing weird about you, you'd probably be pretty boring. You'd yeah. probably be a pretty boring oh, yeah. person. It's part of what makes, uh, makes, makes us beautiful. Like our quirks are really what make us interesting and beautiful I am so I'm I'm glad we're talking about this topic, but I just wanted to make a shout out to you and Alice for winning the uh, People's Choice Creator Award at CrimeCon. Was that that's an award that's voted on by listeners, right? Right. Yeah. That's and that's one reason cool. it was it was particularly special to us is because it was voted on by listeners. You know, yeah. and and there are so many great podcast out there and most people if they listen to one true crime podcast they listen to multiple ones so to have that many people decide to give their you know they already give us their time which we always will always appreciate the fact that people spend an hour of their lives their precious lives listening to us but then that they would turn around and say and of all the of all the podcasts i listen to i'm gonna vote for you that was it was something and and we yeah i mean i can't i can't say thank you enough to all the people out there who did that yeah. Did they tell you that it was because of your October episodes? Is that why? That was exactly what it was. <laughs> <laughs> but it's over the top. Right, right. <laughs> so I was going to just sort of like jump into your October episodes for a second, if you don't mind. You know, I had just listened to the episode, The Man Who Killed Halloween, which was about the the guy who, I forget what year it was. It was like in the 1970s. He um poisoned his son with his eight-year-old son with the uh, pixie sticks right it had potassium right. cyanide or something along those lines right. 1974 and, yeah 1974 and i remember like growing up growing up in the 80s you know he, he, you made that point that it was like the perfect time in the episode you said where like communication was great enough that messages could make its make their way around but it, it communication wasn't great enough we didn't have the internet so we couldn't check things out 
And that that part really resonated with me because I remember all of the sort of like rumors and stories that that we used to hear around those times, some that had to do with horror, some that had to do with other things, but we had like Dungeons and Dragons is going to like suck us all in into <laughs> Satanism, <laughs> look out for the razor blades and your Halloween candy. And, you know, some of it wasn't all that serious. Some of it, you know, like the satanic panic probably had negative implications on people's life. And so I was going to ask, like, you know, I remember during that, just during that time, I, I became interested in horror for a variety of different reasons. Lots of good writing and television. Stephen, Stephen King was writing some of his best books, or at least in my opinion, actually, because all of his books are great. <laughs> but some of at least the most meaningful ones for me, I what was going on for you during that time of sort of like growing up and how did you become interested in things like horror and science science fiction well i'm I'm very much a child of the 80s you know i was born in, in 1981 so that was my formative year so that that whole whole period i mean it, it, the 80s are really interesting for a lot of different reasons you already talked about the, sort of the the ability and it's amazing i wish someone would look into this i'm always interested in this kind of stuff like how exactly did we know all this stuff you know how did how how did these sort of urban legends spread around like, do you remember yellow five no what which one was that <laughs> so so the people who are listening will remember this but so in in mountain dew there's like there's a coloring agent called like oh, yellow number yes, five. yes 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 you remember it yes, you remember yes. what it was said to do right, <laughs> right. yes yes and I, I i'm not exactly sure where you grew up you grew up in in maryland were you in maryland at the time? maryland georgia in okay. texas but yeah maryland georgia and texas. In texas i'm in uh-huh. i'm in the middle of nowhere alabama uh-huh right and we're here, you and I are hearing the same rumors that like, if you drink this, it's going to have like a negative impact on, you know, certain parts <laughs> the of the rest body, of your right? life. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yes. Exactly. How did that happen? I right? have no idea. Like, how did we all know that? Like, I have no idea how that kind of thing spreads across the country. And I guarantee you, every single person listening to this who grew up, who was born before like 1990 and maybe afterwards for all I know <laughs> knew about that. And there wasn't any internet. There were no chat boards. There was there was nothing, but everybody knew about it. And that was what's sort of weird about the eighties is you had just enough communication, just enough interconnectivity that things like that could spread. The satanic panic could spread. Rumors could spread about all sorts of things. And so I think you kind of lived in a world of a little bit more mystery back then. Yeah. You know, because, yeah. There was no way to disprove that. If somebody told you a fact, you could go home to your Encyclopedia Britannica if you had one and pull it out and see if there was an did, injury for it. Shocked, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so there was there was just nothing you could do. You know, I mean, maybe you could go to some sort of expert, but there was nothing really you'd do. And that and and there was that sort of mystery. The world was more mysterious when we were growing up than I think yeah. it is for kids now, because now you're just covered up with information. And obviously there's a different side to it now. I mean, we have fake news and all that stuff. And with artificial intelligence, we're going to have separating fact from fiction is going to be really difficult going into the future. But we were just in a very unique place. And I think you combine sort of that mystery with a lot of the other stuff that was going on. The 80s was sort of a golden age for horror. A lot of your traditional slasher movies were big then. 
you know, they'd started in the seventies with Halloween and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but then you're, you're seeing all the Friday the 13th and all the Nightmare on Elm Streets and people were into horror at the time in a way they weren't so much in the nineties. The nineties is kind of a wasteland for horror until Scream came out. Scream sort of mm. revitalized that whole thing. But for me, to answer your question, I've talked a lot without actually answering your question. For me, Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson was oh, what? I, I totally know. Thriller, right? Thriller. Yeah, thriller. Right. Thriller. right. Thriller. I, that yeah. may have been the first really <laughs> horror thing I ever saw. Like Absolutely. He was, yeah. He was my first concert, actually. He was, Is that right? Was, That's yeah, awesome. It was amazing. I never saw Michael Jackson in concert. I consider that uh, a huge loss. Yeah. But yeah, when I was growing up, that Thriller video... I had it on some medium. You know, the 80s was an also a time when there was all these mediums that popped up for like five minutes and went away. And it was some medium. It was like a massive disc. It was like a big square. Betamax? And it wasn't Betamax. It was like flat. It's hard to even describe it. It was probably like a foot by like a foot, maybe. Oh. Square. <laughs> and it only the only thing it had on it was the Thriller video. And we oh, had wow. it would play it. And so I owned the Thriller video on this disc, this disc thing. I don't even know how to describe it. It was like a massive floppy disc, basically. <laughs> and you would slide it into this machine, you know, and this is an example. And it would play like on the machine? It, it would play It would play it on your television. <laughs> wow. So I watched, and I had Thriller on, on record, on vinyl too, too. So I would listen to Thriller all the time, and I would watch, I would watch that video, and I was just totally enthralled by it. And that was, it, that is absolutely 100% what started my love of horror and the mysterious and all that stuff was that video from Michael Jackson. Whenever it came out, I'm not even sure when it came out, probably, did, probably before I really had a conception of Michael Jackson. But then once I was old enough to understand that video completely captured me. And then it was just, you know, it was similar to like a lot of people the the whole R.L. Stein. I feel like R.L. Stein doesn't get enough credit. We talk about Stephen King a lot because Stephen King, mm-hmm. obviously the master, but R.L. Stein. Most people know him for Goosebumps. I was a little too old for Goosebumps, but I read his Fear Street books when I was in like middle school and early mm, high school. Yeah. And those were like his like preteen teen horror, yeah, which was a little bit more adult, a little bit scarier, that kind of stuff. Netflix just made some. Some shows about this. Sorry if I if I ramble. I could, I just love. Oh no! Stuff. Feel like, free, feel free. No, but it no. was. And then in in high school, I read Stephen King for the first time, and then it was, okay. it was over. Yeah. So <laughs> so R.L. Stein was sort of like the gateway drug. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Thriller yeah. was. I think Thriller because I would have seen that. Con- it had to be like eighty three, eighty four, something around that range. And, you know, when I think of it, I can still remember the scenes. I can remember what Michael Jackson was I, I, wearing. I can remember the so the characters. It was so visceral to that piece. But it was so, that was your first introduction, Gateway Drug, <laughs> Stein, and then eventually Stephen King. That's, right, yeah. That's interesting. What was it that you, what, when you watched that Jackson video, what was it that just captured your imagination? You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know if it was because... Part of it was I probably shouldn't have been watching it. I was probably too young for it. I don't know why my parents let me have it. Because my parents were very much in the like, I love them to death. But they were very much in the whole satanic panic thing. I mean, they totally believed that. They were right? afraid, like, yeah. yeah. Dungeons and Dragons, is there are devil worshippers out in the woods. I mean, we believed all this, right? Like, I can remember there were two groups of people that we were terrified of. The clan and <laughs> the devil worshippers. <laughs> and like... 
And there were, and people believed that like there were certain like fields and roads and that's where the clan would go and they would do their things and they would murder people. And then there were other fields and roads and that's where the devil worshippers would go and they would murder people. Not the same roads. Not the same roads. Exactly. There were different people, the different people, different roads, but like three roads diverge in the yellow. Exactly. Exactly. And if you, as long as you pick the right path, you're fine. If you went the wrong way, you're either going to run into the clan or the the devil worshippers. One of the two. Well, I found out that one of the two isn't real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think by the time I was growing up, I don't actually know if, if there were that many, you know, clansmen running around Probably North not. Alabama. Maybe there were, but <laughs> that was sort of, you know, amongst like the young, the kids and stuff. That's what we would, that's what we were afraid of, right? You know, it's interesting you say that because I think that for my mom who grew up a lot earlier, that there was probably an association between sort of like the clan where she was growing up and kind of like ghosts that come bump at the night and stuff like that. Like she always said like the, uh, the not Casper cause Casper is not threatening, but like some of those ghost outfits really sort of caused her to like take a step back at times, which is interesting because the out of my parents, my dad probably grew up closer to the clan in South Carolina than my mother. But it's it's funny how kind of similar that 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 feel is. Well, it's it's an, that's an interesting thought, and the whole devil worshiper thing. I mean, you know, I don't know that there have ever actually been, at least in modern times, and maybe ever, people out in the middle of the woods dancing around a fire, like you know, to their dark god or whatever. But there certainly were people doing that in the south, and like right getting in the twentieth century, right, right, and, right. and they did and the white sheets. I mean, all that stuff. It, it is that is a really interesting dynamic there sort of a connection there and obviously i mean you know they only come out at night they are they are deadly you know Uh they are hunting you i mean all that stuff i mean cross on fire you can see you can see how there would be that connection i mean you really can see how there's how there's that connection and it's interesting that you say that about your mom and it's interesting me i mean just a white kid growing up in you know alabama Nevertheless, in my mind, there was there was very there was very little distinction between these two groups of people. They were both right. very dangerous people <laughs> who were out at night, and if you happened to stumble upon them, they were going to murder you. Bad things. That were was that's happen. what we believed, and mm. and I just in my whole life, it's so funny. Like I never even questioned that. I can remember being in high school and people saying that like calling like a road like that's a clan road, right? Mm. <laughs> like, and now I'm like. Why did we say that? Like that probably wasn't even true. What was it about that poor road? Yeah, what was it about that road that made people think that? Like in the middle of Jasper, Alabama, where I was from. Like I can still remember exactly where that road is. Uh You know, it's just weird. It's just strange the way. But this goes back to what we're kind of talking about. Like sort of the way that you know legends grow up, and Mm -hmm. and and you you make sense of the world around you because. You know, growing up in the 80s, and I'm sure you experienced this too, this as well. I mean, the civil rights movement wasn't that long before that. No, it was only, no. I mean, frankly, it was still going on, right? I mean, yeah, in, a yeah. lot, in a real way, in a real way, it was very much still going on. And the power of, of those sorts of organizations had only recently been broken, if they had been broken at all. And morphed and a little bit into morphed, the background, exactly. which kind of actually made them a little bit scarier, I think, on some right. Ways, uh, and and I've never seen anybody, and I realize that we've completely gone off the rails now, but I've never seen anybody. There are no rails about, here. Yeah, <laughs> that, 
that sociological development in in the South of sort of transforming this very real thing into sort of a legend, right? You know like, what? Like, it reminds me of like my uncle used to talk about the boogeyman, right? Mm-hmm. Or like he would say that there was something he would put on the um, top of the dresser when we were little kids. And he said that if we got up, it would get you. And there were often kind of like these subtle, almost clan references to it, right? That like the clan to some extent for some black families became like the boogeyman. And Mm. yeah. And it was the scary thing that would happen if you got up at night. And I think, you know, I don't know whether I've never talked to my parents about whether that existed in their generation where the clan was very open. Mm -hmm. Um, But I know for like, you know, a kid of the eighties, some of my family members would make references. I mean, cause you'll do, you'll do anything to get a kid to actually go to sleep. So, <laughs> um, right. Yeah. Right. And I wonder whether there is this like connection in people's minds that goes, you know, this fear of the unknown fear of the hidden fear of the thing that you can't see, or even this power that people, um, get through the combination of that. But I, de- I definitely remember my uncle on my father's side making sort of like boogeyman references that kind of linked to it, this big, bad, kind of scary, almost like, now that I think about it, I need to have a conversation with my uncle and let him know that was a little too far. <laughs> in, in retrospect, that may not have been the... Move, But, you know, we did the same thing. Like when I was growing up in Marietta, Georgia, there were like these houses down the street that there were stories about, like, do not go to that house on Halloween because, I don't know, they're going to have razor blades that are clandy or walk on the opposite side of the street. Now, in, in retrospect, years later, I just realized like there was other, you know, they were struggling or whatever. They, <laughs> they had these very normal things, human things going on. But like the, there was always myths with it, right? So the kids in the neighborhood would say, don't go by this house. You would say, why? Well, somebody died there around X time and da, 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 da. And there would be this whole elaborate myth of a story around the spooky house in the neighborhood. Now, I know the people in Long Island who live near Rex Ehrman's house, they, <laughs> they may have been right there. <laughs> and that's in the Long Island serial case, killer case. They might be right. But like we had many things like that. Like there was a, a path that you weren't supposed to walk on past, I don't know, whether it was midnight or whatever, or, you know, so, and then some backstory about a kid had, who had disappeared. And that's why they named the neighborhood across the street Ashley Estates. But we had all these kinds of <laughs> stories, <laughs> and actually, in reality, there the 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 Ashley was just the name of the architect's daughter. <laughs> <laughs> a little less, a little less dramatic. A little less dramatic, yes. But like, there's something that, uh, despite the scary part about being a kid and having a fantasy world, and like, well, having, yeah. And I think part of that, you know, number one, kids can take anything and turn it into a fantasy. I'm learning that having two little kids. It's amazing yeah. their ability to to make something amazing out of the most mundane. And I think horror has always been a part of it. You know, horror, we talk about horror and, and we separate it out. But it really, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like folklore, right? I mean, traditionally, yep. the scary stories have been folklore. And a lot of times, they're either to sort of conceptualize something that's hard to explain or 
to keep people from doing something they shouldn't do. So you shouldn't go into that old abandoned house because it's haunted and there's, you know, whatever. Okay. That's one reason not to go into it. The other reason not to go into it might be the house is falling down and there's, you know, lead paint chipping off the walls. And who knows, there might be someone, you know, living in there who's, who's dangerous or whatever. So you shouldn't go into the house for all those reasons. But, but selling me easier. on the lead paint problem as a six-year-old probably isn't going to work <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. You know, if you tell kids there are wolves in the woods, even if there hadn't been wolves there for two hundred years, they're much more likely not to go in the woods, right? Right. Yep. And I think that's. I think that. I really think that's part of it. I think. I think we build up these legends and we tell these stories to to just conceptualize things that are difficult to explain or difficult to understand or difficult to deal with. You know, whether mm-hmm. everything from the dangerousness of the house, the death itself. Like we're constantly trying to deal with that. And one way we do it is we tell stories. Yeah. One of the things I remember in high school, my journalism teacher handed me a book on fairy tales. I really have to wonder about why she gave me this, but it was a book on, it was like my graduation gift from her. And it was a book on fairy tales, but it told like the real stories, the original stories of the fairy tales. So it was like all these very sweet fairy tales but they, the, you find out that their original version was like creepy, and so like all these things that Disney had turned into these very positive, you know, happy stories, all and and one of the threads of them, one of the really interesting threads was that many of these fairy tales really existed to get kids to do things, right, <laughs> right, exactly, like, yeah, but parenting one hundred and one horror for your kids. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, you learn that very quickly. You can't explain anything to them. You can't ask them sweetly. Sometimes you just have to scare them. <laughs> right. And if it's the right age, it can, it's got to stop because the why, why, why has to be exactly. combated. Right. Um, so I, for me, like my real sort of journey actually started really probably more with science fiction. I got into, I don't remember I, I don't know if you remember this from the 80s, but there was this television series called V, and it involved... I remember it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it, it involved, you know, aliens coming to to Earth, you know, wanting to make peace, but they were really secretly reptilian, and they were trying to harvest the, uh, the um, humans. And I remember, like, the first time I saw the scene where one of the aliens in humanoid form like eat a bird and I was like, huh. And then the facilities for harvesting them. And it, you know, it was really interesting for me. So I have a lot of takeaways from that. It was scary. It was enthralling. It was transporting. Cause I even remember imagining myself as different characters, like characters on the resistance characters on the alien side, but it was really instructive in a different way. And you could sort of like their parallels with star Wars But, like, I learned a lot about, like, values and politics and fascism and individual rights. And and I I wonder whether, like, on some level, science fiction, horror, and some of these things, just like we were talking about children, give us an opportunity to communicate stories to, like, a broad audience that would be harder to stomach in a more direct way, if that makes sense, that... You know, I always think about like the whole arc of something like Star Wars. You know, to many extents, like you could you could 
take that whole story and plan it on um, on uh, the Holocaust in Nazi Germany and have a very sort of like parallel story. But I wonder whether like we digest things. My favorite example is Pet Cemetery. Because to me, that Stephen King book is really about grief and the cost of not managing your grief. And I think if you came to me and you told me, as probably my therapist has said many times, Jason, if you don't manage your grief, bad things will happen. Well, if you hand me Pet Cemetery, I'm like, okay. Right. And I think, no, I think, I think that's hundred percent right. And I think that's the great thing and not just about horror and sci-fi, but a lot of art is that way in that, you know, the best stuff isn't beating you over the head with an idea. You're sort of coming to it yourself. Right. And sci-fi and horror, I think in many ways are uniquely, it's like, because you know, it's not real. Right. I mean, if you read a book on World War II, you know, or if you read even a fictional novel set during the Mm -hmm. Holocaust or during World War II, you know, you're half your brain is fact checking it as you're reading it. And, you know, could this really happen? It's just it's funny. It's harder to suspend your disbelief the more realistic the book is. Mm, You can't let go. I didn't even think of that. You can't really let go if there's like in historical fiction. Yeah, right. But once but if you already or suspending your disbelief and putting yourself in a, a galaxy far, far away or in a world in which there are, you know, zombies and, and, and spirits that can raise the dead and Wendigos and like all this other stuff. If you've already done that, you've already kind of opened yourself up in a way you don't even realize mm-hmm. you've opened yourself up to taking in everything the author is giving you. And a lot of times what you are going to end up taking in are much more complex ideas than if you just looked at the surface. I think that's one reason people often say that books are better than movies because when you make a movie out of a book, it's much harder, I think, usually, to have as much of the subtle, rich subtext. Mm. You can do that so much better in a novel than you can in a movie. Even if you can have it in a movie, it's harder to do it, and usually it's more in your face. Yep, right? yep, yep. And like you, right. can, you can read Dracula and get all sorts of stuff about sort of Victorian norms and sexuality and like all this other stuff. And it's much, much more sort of subtle. And then if you watch like Dracula 1989 or whatever, you get all that, but it's really in your face, right? It's like hitting you on the head. Ding, ding, exactly. ding, 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 ding. Exactly. Well, I remember for me, like, I, it's it's funny too, because I've read, you know, I've read a lot of Stephen King and over the years, I will go back and reread some of those books I read when I was younger and take away different messages. But even as a kid, like, uh, I think the first King book, I really remember reading it. may not have been the first one for me, but it was Firestarter, I think, was the first one I at least remember. And, you know, it's a book about paranormal. It's a book about a girl whose parents were, I think it was, it was some kind of government um, experiment on them that led to her ability to start these fires. And, you know, I walked away with like a lot of lessons over the years, like one of which is like, huh, I wonder what our government is really doing. And and two, and then when I was older, I realized our government can't really hold down a conspiracy. So I worry (laughs) worry less. But, you know, but I also like learned a message about self-control in that story that I don't think my parents could have taught me directly. 
you know, and then there were books like The Stand for me was like a fascinating one, even though it is about secret government stuff. It was almost like a story about like the people who lead us and other things like this. And I always tell people that like, you know, until I read Carrie, I, 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 I feel like Carrie is really the book that taught me the danger or the downside of bullying people. And right. yeah. And not so much because of what happened to everyone, but just that scene where she's in the bathroom and she's in the middle of her menstrual cycle. And I just felt so bad for her at a point. I didn't even know as I'm reading it, what a menstrual cycle was. And I just feel like, like when I think of my values, those kinds of books and stories planted the seeds in ways. And I'm going to apologize to my minister for saying this, that my pastor really was never able to get through. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's like, it's like Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus. You know, Jesus doesn't write horror novels, but let's talk about Jesus. Jesus. in when he's preaching, doesn't just say, this is what I want you to get from this. (laughs) He doesn't just say, here's the lesson. Here's what you should learn from this. You now go do it, right? He told stories and parables. Parables. And yep. and you you in the parable, much like the sci-fi novel or the horror novel, you know, is is a story that draws you in and makes you think about the characters and makes you think about what they're doing and makes you sort of reach your own conclusion about what the lesson is. And that's a, just a much more effective way, I think, to to do that kind of thing. I think it always has been. And I think you've really put your finger on it with with horror and sci-fi. And I think that's why the books that you've been naming are the books that everybody remembers, right? right. Like people can write scare, just books that are meant to scare you. And, and those, those might be successful and, and you, and you might be scared by them and you might even think about them every now and then, but the books that really affect you and affect you, not just because they frightened you, but like you said, helped you develop the way you think about the world and your values and, how you should treat people and like, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy and how to, how to overcome adversity. Right. I mean, that's a huge thing in yeah, horror yeah. is how to overcome the worst possible adversity you could ever face. When the odds seem like they are completely against you and you've lost everything you cared about. Like, how do you keep, how do you keep on against that? Right. It's so funny too. Cause you just made me think of, uh, well, I mean, two things the the part with Jesus and the part with the uh, parables and the part with all these different things, like it allows us to have ownership over it. But one of the things you were talking about, the adversity, I thought of, have you read the book? Um, it's another King book, but the, the oh God, why can't I think of the name? It's the girl who loved Tom Gordon. The I have not. Book. I haven't read that. Okay. One. So it's this, it's a story about this girl who ends up lost in the woods. And I mean, 95% of the book is this girl lost in the woods, which is scary, right, at that age. And she's got her Walkman in, and she's listening, and all she can hear is a baseball game. And she's in love with this, and I hope I'm getting the name right. I think it's Tom Gordon, but she's in love with this um, this uh, baseball player who's playing. There's only a monster in the entire thing for the last 5% of the book. But the whole message of the entire book is dealing with adversity and then I, I almost think like this was Stephen King's spoofing horror. <laughs> the monster shows up in the last five minutes, she defeats the monster, and then she goes. And it was so inspiring. You know, it was a horror story that actually inspired me. 
because I was like, if she can make it that long in the woods, I can be okay. Like when I'm, I don't know, lonely or when I'm, you know, separated from people or yeah. Yeah. And it, there are some things that are really inspiring about the characters too, that make it through those. That's interesting. So how did your interest evolve? Where did we go from Stephen King? So, well, I, you know, I, I read a lot of Stephen King. So basically when I was in high school, I'd never read Stephen King until I was in high school. And I had a English teacher who I was over at her house for some extracurricular thing. She was like the sponsor of, you know, some club that I was a part of. And she had a copy of The Shining. And I was like, oh, I've never, I've never read anything about Stephen King. And she's like, well, you should borrow this book and read it. And I borrowed the book and read it in like a day. Right. And then <laughs> it's amazing. And then your parents had her arrested. Yeah, pretty much. Right. And <laughs> you know, for me, it's all downhill from there. I mean, I've read a bunch of Stephen King books, but I've still not read one. I thought was better than the shining pet cemetery is right up there. Pet cemetery, yeah. Pet cemetery is so intense. I mean, it is, it is an intense book, but do you know the story about how, how he wrote pet cemetery or why he, no. um, yeah, it's very interesting. So he wrote Pet Cemetery, took, took the manuscript, put it in a drawer, was scared by it himself and said, I don't know where that came from and I'm never going to publish it. Years later, he had one book left on his book deal before he could move to his new publisher. So he just pulled it out and put it there. But he, it literally scared him. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I can imagine. I mean, it's. Yeah. It's it'll stick with you. And and, you know, you talk about dealing with grief. Maybe that's one of the reasons is because it is we've all been there. Right. Like we've all had grief. You know, hopefully most of us have never experienced the kind of grief in the book, but many people have. And I think there is something a lot of horror. If you don't want to be if you don't want to see yourself in it, you can remove yourself from it. Because, you know, how often am I going to be on a spaceship fighting an alien, right? But in hopefully Pet Cemetery, soon. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully <laughs> soon. In Pet Cemetery, the, the main crisis of the book is something every single person could imagine themselves being a part of. And he, in that book, the main character is doing things that you in your brain know are insane. He, you know, you know, we shouldn't do this. You're screaming at the book. Don't do it. But in your heart, you're wondering what you would do in that situation. You know, right. and you're thinking, I how would I have be able to not take advantage of that temptation? Temptation is is one of those things Stephen King is so good at encapsulating. And I've heard him talk about sort of the monkey's paw and how it inspires him a lot. Mm. That, that old story about you get a wish, but every time you make a wish, you'll get what you ask for. But there's a cost. Right. And and yet people keep keep making the wishes, even as the costs pile up. And I think this is a similar thing. You know there's this cost, but the temptation to end that grief, that terrible grief that you're feeling is so overwhelming. How do you resist that? And it's, it is a brilliant, it's a brilliant book, and he's a brilliant author, and I'm glad that he gets the respect he deserves because sometimes people look at horror and they're like, oh, genre fiction. That's, that's, so, that's just for the masses. You mm-hmm. know, that's to read at the beach or whatever. Yeah. And... Yeah, it is, and there's nothing wrong with that. Number one, but number two, there's there's a lot of depth here that you might not find in your you know your most recent Booker Prize winner or whatever. But anyways, so read Stephen King, got into Stephen King, was really into horror movies, and then when I was in college, 
I think I was in college. I can I can never remember if I was in college or in my first year of law school. It's possible I was in my first year of law school, but I had always heard about this H.P. Lovecraft character. Mm. And I, and, but I'd never read anything. And I just had this sort of vague notion of Lovecraft. And I was in like a Barnes and Noble and I saw one of the books. It was The Call of Cthulhu and Other Weird Tales. Is, ah. is the name of it. And I picked it up. I was like, oh, I'm going to buy this and just devoured it. And so that was a real, because for the first time, I, I really like Stephen King. I really like what he does. But there's something about the way H.P. Lovecraft looks at the world that was just terrifying to me. I think because King, all of his books have hope in them. They yes. all have, you know, I, I don't know if King's a religious person, but all of his books have a feeling of religion. Like there is a God, there is good. Now there's some very powerful evil out there too, but there typically is, you know, Pet Cemetery, for instance, there, he is being tempted by evil, but there's, there's good attempting to bring him back at the back. same time. And H.P. Yeah. Lovecraft, very different. H.P. <laughs> <H>. Lovecraft <laughs> posits a world where actually no, there's not even really good and evil. There is just this massive, uncaring universe that that mm. wants to devour you, not because it dislikes you, because you don't even matter to it. That's you don't just what it, it does. Exactly. Any more than like an ant bed on the side of the river. When the when the when the river floods and destroys the ant bed, it's not that the river is angry. That's just what happens, right? <laughs> and the river has no concern for the ant bed, and that's essentially you know, humanity and the universe. And then in sort of parallel with that, this notion of something ancient that's so much older than us that was here before we were here. Like I've always loved that. That idea has always been something that fascinates me. It's become very mainstream and sort of, you know, quasi archeological, those kind of circles that maybe there right. were you know, prior civilizations on earth and everything like that. But I was always fascinated by that. And H.P. Lovecraft was ahead of his time on that. And so we combine the sort of uncaring universe with this sort of mystery, mysterious, unknown past. And I just, man, I just ate it up. I thought it was amazing. Yeah. So, so the, so that was, you said, was that high school or was that college? That was college. It was college going into law school. Yeah. And so in Lovecraft, like, is that where we get the idea of like that cosmic horror? I know we call it like yes. Lovecraftian horror. But it's that idea that you have a horror that's even bigger than humanity, where a lot of horror sort of operates within the threads of humanity. Right. You know, because I think of, you know, it's funny, and it almost makes sense, like, if, Shi if The Shining was your favorite uh, Stephen King book, like, I've always viewed The Shining, and I know other people have different views of it, but as really about things like addiction, isolation, um, you know, all of these different elements, but I thought one of the things in reading Lovecraft's, a, a big piece of it was like how solitary and lonely and independent uh, being a human being on this planet that may not care that much about us was. I mean, I mean I'm curious, like, what, what? oh, and the other thing about Lovecraft that I really loved that was like a, a step up the narrators were almost inevitably unreliable. And that was the first time I realized like, hey, I can't really trust the narrator here even. And that adds another element to it for me. 
Theum. Right, because most of the narrators, by the time they're narrating, have had something happen to them that's basically driven them mad. Right. <laughs> so, yes. so there's always a little bit of a question about how much you can trust exactly what they're saying. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's... Well, Lovecraft... You know, Lovecraft's a weird guy. He yeah. was... I don't know how much you know about him personally, but basically... No, nothing. He was this sort of ahead of his time guy growing up in New England in some ways. Like, he he... He sort of he wasn't of this world like he just of the world he grew up in. In some ways he was ahead of his time. In some ways he was born a hundred years too late. He was you know he loved history and he loved the past and he didn't modernity wasn't something he liked and that was part of his writing style. He was very isolated. He talked about isolation. I think one of the reasons that comes through so much is because he was sort of an isolated person and an extreme introvert. I think. A xenophobe is probably the best way to describe him. He's sometimes described as a racist. I think that does not give him enough credit for how much he disliked people. People, uh, he, yeah. He disliked right. basically everybody, you know, every, including himself. You know, it was just, he, he just really didn't like people that much at all and had these sort of wild views about humanity. And I think like most sort of geniuses, a lot of geniuses are not well-adjusted normal people. Right. I mean, you see yeah, that a lot of no, time. No. In fact, I mean, I hate to say no geniuses are well adjusted normal people because I'm sure there's some out there who are, but you tend to see that. Stephen King talks about this, like the things he struggled with and how it's, you know, helped his horror. Right? Yeah. Right. Um, right. Right. Well, if you look at his first series of books, it's, I mean, I think he talks very openly about his demons and his addiction through his first set of books. And, I've always felt like, yeah, he had this one great line. I can't remember what it was about horror and about writing. Oh, I, I can't. It's that his writing is a, uh, a lie or hold on. No, uh, the truth wrapped in a lie and, and that it was his therapy during that time. Mm. But you were saying about Lovecraft, he, you think that that, that he, he in many ways, he was writing his own feelings. To- right. I think only someone who had who had a lot of sort of anger in his heart towards his fellow man could have developed mm. a, a cosmic theory of horror like he had, where mankind was so insignificant and so unimportant and, mm. and really just in, in overwhelmed, right? I mean, there was no... There, most of Lovecraft's stories, even if the protagonist makes it through to the end, it's only at great cost. You know, mm-hmm. like I said, maybe it's his sanity, maybe it's his health, you know, but he's going to lose a lot. Maybe it's his family. There's there's no triumphant victory at the end in most of Lovecraft's It's like stories. everybody's Job. Right, everybody's Job. And it's sort of the inevitability of death is very much in Lovecraft's because can you ever really win in this world? I mean, okay, you beat the clown and send him back to wherever he came from. Yay, well, in 30 years, you're still going to die, right? Right, <laughs> yes, right. There was, there was some, there's very much some of that in Lovecraft that it's just at most, and you see this in a lot of his stories, generally speaking for people out there who don't know, I mean, the idea of Lovecraft is that there are these sort of cosmic entities, vast, vastly more powerful, knowledgeable, older than we are, who, who have come to Earth for various reasons and are asleep or dormant. They were here millions of years ago. Something happened. It's very unclear what. 
they're now sort of sleeping, but they are seeking, either they are seeking to awake or there are people seeking to awake them or there are other cosmic entities that want to do so. And most of the stories are really, you can't stop them and you can't defeat them. All you can do is delay them, you know? And in much the way, that's, that's basically what life is. Death is inevitable. You can work out every day. You can eat healthy. All you're doing is delaying the inevitable. That is Lovecraft. In many ways, <laughs> you may, Cthulhu may still sleep, but he's only Little. sleeping for now. He will awaken eventually, right? Very nihilistic. That, there, wonder, there's a lot of nihilism in Lovecraft. Yeah, I wonder whether uh, Lovecraft uh, inspired Stephen King's The It with the clown that comes back. However, what was it, 20, 30 years Later, Wait, do you know if Lovecraft was admired during his time? So he had a circle of admirers who liked who who were completely dedicated to him. He published most of his stuff in the old Weird Tales magazine. That's where most of his stuff was published. And the people who published Weird Tales liked him quite a bit. Obviously, they would publish anything he wrote. And then he had a circle of admirers that he would that he would write letters to. Um, one of the, you know, some of them became significant in their own ways, literary figures in their own ways. You know, for instance, he was very close to the, to the, to Robert Howard, who developed the, the Conan, the barbarian Mm, um, storylines, which, you know, have spawned a thousand different properties. Right. And, and other people include, and, but the main one was a man named August Derleth and he collected all of his works and started issuing the first books of Lovecraft and Lovecraft's popularity really grew after his death. And probably now is when you really see the peak of it. Stephen King will tell you he was very much inspired by um, Lovecraft. Lovecraft's and story. I think, I think it's a good example. He has some very just revival. If you've ever read that revival is pure Lovecraft. Mm, it's an absolutely yes, Lovecraftian story that ends in a very Lovecraftian way. Um, but he, he is, he goes with that. It's one reason I like him because he has that even pet cemetery, like the end of pet cemetery, the very last, like uh-huh, scene. Pet cemetery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very much. There's a lot of Lovecraftian stuff going on in that forest. Because so. there's the piece in pet cemetery where, um, you know, as I recall, it's, you know, they move into the town, all these sort of like weird things happen, you know, that's all your warning and foreshadowing. They go out to the, you know, walk on the path. And I still like in my head, I can still imagine their first walk out to the um, old pet cemetery. And, you know, eventually their son dies. I know I'm speeding through this. Their son dies and he has this opportunity because he knows i think it's the cat is gets buried in the pet cemetery then comes alive but of course you know when he does it to his son he's never the same but toward the end of the book his wife dies and he still like i feel i relate to this dude in this particular moment in terms of being such a knucklehead he buries her and I totally did not expect the last scene where she walks in and sticks her hand on his shoulder. That was not the ending I was expecting for him. I was expecting the, he will learn his lesson. So I almost felt like King was trying to drive, <laughs> drive the hammer into our heads on that point. about the- And it's, 
It's interesting because King, his stories usually end on a high note. Yep. And that one. Stephen King, that one does not. Stephen King's stories, the main person almost always comes out on top. And that one, definitely not. (laughs) Yes. No, no. (laughs) And I think, you know, that that's, I mean, we, that's a, I'd be interested to know what Allison Dixon thinks about Pet Cemetery because, you know, she's a huge Stephen King fan, but it's a great one. It's a great one. I agree. I agree.